A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have Dr. Camille Colas with me. She is um, the author of a a new book, The RE Generation, and um, also just an experienced uh, nonprofit executive, uh, transformation consultant, and musician, which is the part that I love the most, being a musician myself. (laughs) So um, it's great to have you on the show today, Camille. It is so great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, so... The the book is is, is quite interesting, and, and we'll we'll get into some of some of that. I don't want to give too much of it away, but but through the years you've become kind of an expert in your field. And uh, when we talk in terms of, of transformation and the work that you did in, in your consulting world, um, there's there's a path that got you here. And again, don't want to give too much away to to the listeners. I want want you to be able to share your story with us. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you for a minute to please share your story of how you've gotten to become the expert you are today. Oh my goodness! Well, thank you for that introduction. Um, you know, when I think about telling the story of how I got where I am, um, there's different avenues into that story, and I think I'll start here actually. So. Um, I'm a city girl from St. Paul, Minnesota, and um, I'll tell you the story, actually, of traveling to northern Minnesota in my early 20s. This begins to set the stage for my interest in the space between our inner and outer life that has just stayed with me, stayed with me throughout all my work and my musical work and my executive work. So here's, here's what I experienced. Um, So I'm in my early 20s. I'm traveling to northern Minnesota, stopping along at those cute shops along the way. And in one of the stores, I found a book called uh, How to Find Your Way Without Compass or Map by Harold Gatti. Now, he wrote this actually in 1958. This version was 1999, and it was under a different name in 1958. I didn't even have to crack open the book. The title captured me so much to the point where I thought, I think there's a world out there that I am not tapping into fully. In other words, having grown up with quite a rational left-brained family, my dad was a doctor and was extremely um, kind of methodical, and he, he, he did really well in that way. My mom was more of that intuitive person uh, who actually loved reading about the lives of the saints, to be honest, um, and has, and we would wind up having conversations about philosophy since about age nine. So when I saw this title, How to Find Your Way Without Compass or Map, I thought this is speaking to a more intuitive sense than I had allowed myself to explore in my own life, you know, everything being sort of externally motivated, you know, write the pros and cons of any decision on the back of an envelope, you know, do these kinds of things that are all left brain based versus this kind of creative, more organic way of thinking. And so um, this peculiar resonance, I'll call it with that book title, um, I had to think about that for a while and how, what, what was that saying to me? And so fast forward to 
Um, the fact that I was a, actually a piano performance major in college and a business minor. So, um, you know, I feel like I've always been a bridge person, too. So I'm putting these puzzle pieces together. Mm-hmm. People have said, maybe you're a bridge person where you bridge between cultures. That's kind of an old term where um, in tribal communities, the person that could actually speak between cultures was called the bridge person. Yeah. And so here I am, a classically trained musician wildly in love with pop music. (laughs) And um, so when I graduated, I joined a a pop rock band right after doing my Chopin, Rachmaninoff, uh, you know, Beethoven recital. And so I felt right there as a musician, I was starting to be this bridge. Um, And again, I'm starting to correlate this. What is this more improv way of doing life versus the more rational you know, left-brained, methodical way of doing life. So this um, began to lay the groundwork, but I, I wasn't to, to get to a PhD program. I wasn't to move uh, right away into this exploration yet. I actually turned my music and my business degree into um, an arts administration career. So I was really pleased to be an executive director for almost 20 years of a couple different uh, arts, performing arts organizations. And here again, I always felt this impetus to use music as a tool to bridge to other cultures rather than just doing kind of the same old presentation. And by the way, these were two classical music organizations that I was running. Um, Quite literally in the first one, we started a program called the Bridges Program, which was specifically a program that would use music, classical music, if you can imagine, as a tool to bridge to other cultures, whether it was Latin American culture, um, African American culture, even architecture. We began to bridge to other um, kind of art forms, if you will. Um, in interesting ways. And um, so this, again, this thread just seemed to be inside of me. Uh, Then I wind up also at an international music festival that I ran um, about a decade ago. Um, And again, I just, I I think this thread was always inside of me. And what I'm leading to is my PhD work and really the the book that has just come out and why why these themes resonated with me. Uh, Even when I ran the music festival in California, um, it was the Carmel Bach Festival, and I was the first person in 70 years to actually um, put together a collaboration between the Monterey Jazz Festival and the Carmel Bach Festival. They've both been around for about 70 years and nobody had done that. And I thought, this is fantastic. What a great opportunity to bridge jazz and classical. And, you know, how can we do that? Um, So... Moving on then, um, I took a break from that and um, began to really explore what is really in my heart. What What is this constant um, messaging that I'm getting about that there's something more, there's something more I need to be exploring? Because arts administration, I, I feel I was pretty successful. I think most people would say I was, but I always felt that there was kind of a lack of satisfying conversation or or, or I, I, that's the best way I can think of to describe it. In other words, even though I was in the arts, which is kind of that softer side of life, even though we would talk creativity, um, how to bridge between different cultures, you know, all these kind of softer skills, the softer side of life, I still felt like it was taboo or at least not welcome to speak about 
kind of matters of ultimate concern, I should say, or existential matters. And because I'd been talking about these matters with my mom since about age nine, I think I always just like, how come nobody else wants to talk about this? And so, um, and why, why can't we just seamlessly do that? I can do budgets. I can run boards. You know, I can, I know how to put on events, but I also want to talk about these matters of ultimate concern, you know, um, just because we're human. Um, and I would say another key piece in this journey has been um, as a pianist, I have played at church services mm-hmm. basically since I've been 14 years old. Uh, and I have had the opportunity to play for probably over 750 weddings. Um, but more importantly, in this case, for this story, about, well, maybe 200 funerals. And and in that case, I've heard many, many eulogies. So this perspective of the end of life, this portal into the end of life that I was able to, you know, become um, aware of through sitting at the piano bench, witnessing all these um, eulogies, I, I just began to think, okay, what matters at the end of life is not that you were the CEO of this thing or that, you know, you um, increased profit sharing by whatever, or, you know, um, all these sort of mechanical, worldly, um, assumed, what should I say, um, kind of status symbols in our daily life and achievements that we like to put on our resume. What is said at these eulogies, rather, is more um, about kindness. I don't want to get too over saccharine here, but I'm telling you, it's small moments of humor, uh, kindness, um, you know, just all kinds of things, again, that we don't really talk about in real life or in regular life, I should say. And I thought, okay, so here we go again. Why do we only get to talk about what really matters to our entire life trajectory? Perhaps you might say our soul's work, depending on how you define that. Why do we only get to talk about that at the end of life? How about if we back that up? How about if we back that up into everyday life so that we perhaps are sparked, you know, into kind of a more joyful, more engaged way of living, I would imagine, is it so? This has this led me to my um, my PhD work. I, I basically took a detour from my arts administration career and um, decided to go into this PhD program called transformative studies. Everybody asks, "What the heck is transformative studies?" So it's really a combination of sociology, um, psychology. Um, in fact, we could sort of make what we want, but it's really a study of personal and social transformation. And my program actually would speak about this idea that there is no social transformation without personal transformation. So um, that integration was key to the program. And of course, that integration was key to then the dissertation or the research project that I wound up Mm -hmm. doing. Um, And so... uh, I should say too, all along the way, as I've been thinking about this inner outer life, I've been thinking, what about the business realm? How come, and this leads to, to the book that we, we just published, what would happen if business became a field for personal transformation? 
what if there were a much deeper integration of what really matters in life in our business life? And it sounds too soft and maybe a little preposterous for the profit making that we need to be doing, but I feel and my interviewees in my research have borne out this notion that actually when we do more of what matters, everything shifts and there's a deeper sense of fulfillment. And, you know, there are profits as well, but perhaps they become slightly less important. And then you think, well, how could that be less important? We've got to have an economic engine. We've got to have unending economic growth. Well, we're calling that into question. Our book, The RE Generation, calls this into question. My PhD research has called this into question as well. Um, And so what I wound up doing with many, many ideas of how to address this again, this sort of um, impetus inside me to explore this, how do we navigate, how do we better navigate the landscape between our inner and outer lives? I had 65 different ideas. My chairperson said, you, you got to get out of orbit, girlfriend. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got to start narrowing. And so what I did was I, I've always been fond of social entrepreneurs. Um, actually, in my master's degree program at the Humphrey Institute in Minneapolis, I um, I began to look, and this was back in the early 2000, or mid-2000s, I began to explore this burgeoning group of entrepreneurs who were using that entrepreneurial impetus, but for social mission purposes. And they weren't necessarily using grant money. Now, as a nonprofit executive, I'm fully aware of how you, you know, raise money through grant writing and you know, individual fundraising and things like this. But what really fascinated me was, wait a minute, they're actually using business models, real business models, like a landscape company that only hires um, people that have been on the street and and teaches them skills. Um, In my work, I was, I interviewed in a very deep way, um, six different social entrepreneurs who met a very strict criteria, because again, I didn't want it to be any social entrepreneur, especially those that were mostly relying on grant dollars, if you will, because I felt there are plenty of us that understand what it is to feel the need to launch a nonprofit in the world. Um, You know, it comes out of deep care for humanity, whatever it is. Um, If it's a social service nonprofit, what I was really, really curious about though, is how is it that somebody actually uses a business model to do social mission driven work? And so the criteria for my interviewees, for my um, research were that number one criteria was this person must have left conventional life as we know it and successful conventional life to heed a a, a calling to a deeper engagement in social purpose or humanitarian action. Uh, Number two, they must have used services or sell goods in order to earn part of their revenue. That's the business component. Um, Number three, this can't be part of any spiritual or religious organization or institution because why? Because I really wanted to get at how do our deepest human values live in the secular world? Um, and the, um, so, so bringing all those components together, I felt like I was kind of getting at this secular space and how do we, 
live out our values in a secular space. Wow. Uh, you know, a lot going on there. Uh, it's what, what, a, what a great, great path. And um, we're up on our first break. So we're going to step away for a couple of minutes. When we come back, I want to explore a little bit further some of the things that, that, that you shared in that story. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Connect with us and we'll connect with you. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on LinkedIn. Get the first word about happenings with the network, where our next live event will be, and what's up with our hosts. Look up Voice America on LinkedIn. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Dr. Camille Colas. So, Camille, um, before we went to the break, you were sharing the story of, of your path to, to, to kind of getting to the PhD, which, which is your work today, and, um, and the, bo- the book itself, you know, the, the, the data and the research that, that took you to this book. And, um, you know, what you were describing before that is what I would call a highly purpose-driven organization. You know, when, when organizations become purpose-driven, they operate at a very, very different level when they know their why, when they know what's important. And, you know, you're right in that, that the purpose sometimes kind of over, um, uh, you know, 
kind of overtakes the, the concept of profit. Profit's still important. Companies need to make money in order to go forward, unless you're a, a public company that has to hit certain numbers every quarter. When you become purpose-driven, um, everything else comes into play. Like, for instance, I mean, I can even share um, one example. You know, you've got Apple, which is a very purpose-driven company, and look how much money they make, and look how engaged people are. I think you get a lot of engagement when people are tied to that that purpose. And that's, that's a huge example. But in small companies all day long, the companies I work with that are purpose driven always seem to even perform better than the ones that aren't. So I wonder if you could take a minute and address that and, and, and have that lead into some of the research and your findings with some of the people you talked with for the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we are purpose driven, when, when there is a deeper source of energy emanating from us, then Again, kind of that left brain, head only space I was referring to earlier. I think uh, some magic happens, actually. Um, There's actually research that I did reference in my work that talks about um, the contagion. Well, it's not good to talk about contagiousness now, but let's say this is beautiful Mm -hmm. contagiousness (laughs) of virtuosity, Oh, sorry, virtuousness, not virtuosity. That's my piano world. A virtuous virtuousness uh, is contagious, according to this research. In other words, when people witness others who are on fire, others who are inspired, others who are other-centered, and perhaps you know, putting themselves more in the background, diminishing the importance of the self, so that they can. Um, well, which gives them more brain space, more spirit spirit space, actually, to be with others. This winds up becoming contagious, and I I can't help but think that that level of inspiration, um, sort of that contagious sense of almost like a wowness. Who is this person that's able to run the business this way? Um, there's just it's it, it. I think it's an invisible energy, and I think. Part of what I'd like to say today is we need to pay more attention to that invisible energy because I do think it can translate into profits. I think we've seen that. Obviously, Apple is your is your fine example of that. And um, my interviewees have much smaller organizations because when I interviewed them, they um, were just launching this enterprise. That was quite key to my research as mm-hmm having them be quite close to the moment that they have launched so they could kind of remember what brought them there. And so with that, I would love to actually share a couple examples. Um, These stories of my interviewees, these social entrepreneurs who I call exemplars of social purpose, kind of to your point of purpose-driven, again, defined by those qualities I mentioned earlier. They must have left conventional life, successful life to uh, you know, and what caused them to do that, to, to heed this other calling. So um, I was thrilled to be able to speak with these people and talk about contagion. I was so inspired and their virtuousness has never left me. In fact, when I was speaking to other people, I could see that when I tell their stories, people's eyes light up. One of them um, was, uh, I, I won't use any names because I promised I wouldn't in um, my my research work. One of these people um, was in um, was an award-winning chef. Basically, for two years in a row, he won Best Chef of the Year in a major, major metropolitan area in the United States. Um, he wound up getting uh, volunteered. He didn't volunteer. Someone else volunteered him to teach um, 
these eight kids from the juvenile detention center how to make ice cream for a, a food competition that was going on. Hmm. Now, mind you, the food competition also included uh, kids from the fancy culinary school in the metropolitan area. So <clears throat> the way his story progresses is such a beautiful example of um, how the other stories progressed. His is so crystal clear. Um, he went through a series of what I call kind of a four, um, four levels of increasing awareness <clears throat> that caused him to do this shift, to, to shift um, away from his work towards founding a social enterprise. So um, let, me, let me tell it to you this way. He first had a, the, the first level is this general awareness of, of, in his case, social injustice in the life of another. The second level is a more personal engagement with people who have this social injustice experience. And for him, he says to me, when I first was introduced to these eight um, young men at the juvenile detention center, who um, he says, I realized that I had judged them before I even met them. And I, he said, I consider myself an unbiased person. And all of a sudden, there I was face to face with these individuals, knowing that I had to work with them and going, oh, my goodness, I already have this screen in front of me that is telling me a story about who they are. So in the second level of awareness, he um, what I found in all my social entrepreneurs and all my interviews was that we begin to and he began to um, find a, kind of a place of closeness between who he is and who this person is. Now, mind you, these were eight African-American um, kids in about their mid-teens. So in this, in the third level, so first is general, kind of a general awareness. Second is kind of closer proximity to somebody begins to break down some of those barriers of differences between yourself and the other. The third level, at the third level of awareness, he began to speak about literally the 16-year-old him. He was about 35 when I interviewed him. He said, I began to see my 16-year-old self in this 16-year-old um, African-American boy. And my other interviewees spoke about the same phenomenon, which is a greater capacity to see yourself in another. You know what I'm saying? We're so again, we're kind of beginning to break down some of those barriers of difference between. And then the fourth level, I call it awareness saturation. At the level of awareness saturation, each of my interviewees, uh, it's like they had seen enough. They could no longer live and work the way they had been working. In the case of this chef, he said, I had real estate uh, developers chomping at the bit to put me in a restaurant that would, you know, anchor some new development. He said, and because he had just come off of winning best chef for two years in a row. And he said, you know, none of that meant anything to me anymore. The only thing that meant anything to me was that I could do right by these kids in some way and help them out of this um, situation because what he had, here's, here's a key story here. His kid wound up winning the competition, making ice cream. And the kid was so excited. And he said, I want to, I can't wait to get out there. I can't wait to get out of detention center so that I can, you know, make food for people. I love making food. I love that it puts smiles on people's faces. And so he mentioned some kind of fast food restaurants that he was hoping to work at actually. And this um, social entrepreneur interviewee, you know, he was all enthusiastic, you know, all supportive. As he was driving home, he thought, you know, with this kid's record, he's not even going to be able to get into one of those kind of restaurants. And so 
this was that awareness saturation point I'm talking about, which is that fourth level of awareness. He said, I need to do right by these kids. And so he put aside all these real estate developers, you know, wanting him to anchor a store. And he launched his own restaurant, hiring only formerly incarcerated kids to teach them life skills, social skills, cooking. So he'd have them behind the scenes. He'd have them literally serving people with white tablecloths. Um, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. Uh, he probably wouldn't mind me sharing. Um, this is actually in, in uh, Texas and it's called Cafe Momentum. I might as well give him a little shout out. Cafe Momentum. So it's all about using the, um, the business model of a restaurant in order to build skills, build social skills, help these kids come out of their past and enter you know, society as a fully functioning member of society. So stories like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, there's another I wanted to share that's, that's um, a little bit different, but again, has those same four levels of awareness. This person actually already was a social worker, but she began to see in her work that the car that a person had who was living kind of on the edge of the poverty line if their car broke down, that became the wedge or the um, domino effect that suddenly they weren't able to get to work. They couldn't bring their kids to school if they weren't on a bus. They lost their wages. Anyway, they, this was a downward spiral at which they would probably wind up homeless because of the car repair expense was too much. And so she kept saying to herself, somebody's got to do something about this. And um, she'd see it over and over again, this downward spiral based on someone needing car repairs and they couldn't afford it. So she kept saying, someone's got to do something about this. And at one point, she had that saturation point where she said, oh, I think that person's me. And so at the age of 38, having already a full career, she enters a two-year auto mechanic school (laughs) with a bunch of 18-year-old men. (laughs) She's the only woman and she's 38. And so she has this sort of sense of maybe she'll help do some repair on her in her own, you know, house in her own garage. Anyway, she wasn't quite sure how this thing was all going to go. And there are some very interesting stories of her experience there, but I'll just cut to the cut to the point uh, and the social enterprise that she launched, which is a um, low hour. It's about $15 an hour to repair your car. Um, Today, it's, uh, it's actually in my hometown of Minneapolis called uh, the Lift Garage. So I'll give her a shout out as well. And she's been a C- named a CNN hero. If you know Anderson Cooper winds up and, and friends wind up doing this uh, CNN hero bit. Um, and she's got a long list of car repairs, as you can imagine. But these people have to meet, I think it's 150% of the federal poverty rate mm-hmm. in order to be able to use her services. Um, so she in, she has found a space again a business a business that which is what thrills me that can help move people out of poverty or those on the edge can help keep them out of um, homelessness and um, so <laughs> these stories um, when I began to analyze them I saw um, another. It was about another four or five set of uh, qualities or variables that showed up. 
in who these people were and what was happening with them. The first one, vulnerability on behalf of others. Mm -hmm. This is a term that has a bunch of dashes. Vulnerability on behalf of others. Not vulnerability in the other ways that aren't so good in our lives, but when we take a step back and become um, open, by the way, open to hearing other people's stories, open to how we might be able to help them, um, when we begin to reduce our bias, which is actually number two, in these social entrepreneurs, a pattern I saw was um, this oh, bias reduction. It just, it just kind of hit me so much that the irony of um, when you reduce bias and you think, oh, I'm doing that for everybody else so that I don't judge them, you're actually helping yourself because you're reducing your own judgment that you may have on your own self. Um, and it's, it again, this invisible energy, it seems to open up what I call kind of this interconnectedness energy. Um, and the third um, quality is uh, this, you can hear it coming, this kind of diminishment of the self. There is a sense of um, humility, a, a profound sense of responsibility to, to others. You know, I think we, we, and this is addressed in our, our book as well, I think we tend to um, think that our responsibility stops at our family. You know, we tend to go, our immediate family, that's who I care about. My immediate friends, that's who I care about. But my research and this book um, tries to introduce or underscore, because many others have said this too, underscore this idea that um, we need to think of the whole global family as our family. And you never know when you're going to run into somebody who is not in your family, who has a deep need. And when you become vulnerable on behalf of them, you never know how that's going to transform your own life. And to me, that's part of that spark of, of living, that, that part of um, human potential. You know, there's, there's a term that may, may be overused, but I still love it. I've, I've taken to using human capacity a little bit instead because it's a little fresher this idea that how do we tap into this deeper human capacity well what i found was since these people all said to me i can never go back i can never go back to who i was i can never go back to that work which says to me there's been a permanent change in who they are um and so in um again that quality of um sort of decentering of the self, humility, um, this profound change in their sense of who they are responsible to also showed up, which I found absolutely fascinating. Um, and so all of this together <clears throat> led me to this notion of, of um, the capacity to feel more into our interconnectedness. Okay, this is starting to get philosophical, but I told you with my mom, <laughs> we, we are now at that space where I bring together the nine-year-old me who's been talking philosophy for a long time and today, today's experience. So I have to apologize, but I completely kind of lost track of time. We've, we've come to the, I'm just, just, you know, in the story here, um, we need to take another break. So uh, we're going to slip away for a couple more minutes and we'll come back one more time to be with Camille.
Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. In business, many leaders have a great vision, but find their companies are lacking adequate execution. Transformative Experts with host Chris Elias takes you behind the scenes with real-life business leaders and transformative experts who can pinpoint why. Listen to learn how company culture drives execution to optimize results. How can you afford to miss it? Tune in live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. We're back one last time with Camille Colas. So, Camille, um, the the research you've done for your PhD is is really just incredible. You know, getting PhDs, you know, hard work as it is, and now you've written written the book. Uh, tell me, how did you how did you make the leap? How do you connect this research to what you wrote about, and and how is that then even more relevant? Because a dissertation is one thing; it's another thing to write something that's relevant for people to want to read. Absolutely. You just hit it on the head there. Um, this book, The RE Generation, and the, after the colon is Sowing Seeds for a Future of Reimagination, Reconnection, and Regeneration. So that's the full title. Um, 
And I should say that um, because, as you noted, a dissertation is is quite a technical document. Um, this book, on the other hand, is extremely readable. It's very, very accessible. And um, much of what I mentioned actually is not in the book, <laughs> but what is in the book are just a, a lot, a lot of stories of other individuals, corporations as well. We bring in Best Buy, we bring in Patagonia. Um, for those people that are more in, t- in tune with the uh, corporate world. Mm-hmm. So we've got the smaller the smaller organizations and that um, real vibrancy in the social entrepreneur world, but we also bring in, as I said, um, the corporate America, Unilever. You know, what are these companies doing that are um, reexamining, you know, reframing, renewing, reimagining uh, their own work? And then how does that affect society. So um, just to clarify too, the RE generation refers to people who are doing these RE uh, activities. They are re-examining, reframing, reimagining, regenerating. A lot of RE words that you can think of. These people are galvanized by reimagination of their, their own relationship to themselves the relationship to other people and the relationship to the environment. And it's all placed within a business context. So this is definitely a business book. So while I was speaking quite philosophically before, um, please know this is quite, um, you know, quite an accessible read. A lot, a lot of stories about, um, you know, just inspiration that's already happening. One, one clarifying question, you know, um, Today and the word generation can have so many meanings. Meanings, right? And in, in, in business, we hear really about the generations. You know, whether you know baby boomers are for the most part, you know, now retired, and you got the gen, generation Xers, and you got the millennials, the Gen Zs. I mean, so when you hear generations, but what you're talking about isn't tied to any of those age generations. This is this is more of a, I almost want to say like a movement in a way. I mean, it, it this is not an age dependent thing, is it? Absolutely right. This defies age. You can be um, Greta Thunberg at age, whatever age she was, where she started speaking up on climate change, I think 14, to um, those who have um, who launched Patagonia and who have actually moved on. Um, so, yes, thank you for that clarification. We are, this is an ethos. This is an ethos. It's a way of thinking about yourself as you move through the world. And it's about um, really ushering in a new paradigm might be a new way to say this. In other words, why do we need to reimagine, reexamine, reframe, you know, regenerate? Because a lot of what we've been doing, especially in business, has not been working for the human spirit. I think we have economic systems that don't support actual human flourishing. Um, we have seen now that our environment um, is, you know, feeling the effects. Our, our soil needs to be regenerated. In other words, the environment is, is, has been thought of in the dominant paradigm that we currently live under as if it's something outside ourselves, as if we humans are not actually an organic part of the environment as well. Um, and so this idea of the divisions, the binaries between human and nature um, even male and female, you know, these binaries that we've been living under that become just this dominant paradigm, I think are, have not, has not served us. And so this book 
again, offers inspiring stories about how people are taking a new look at this. How can we think seven generations in the future instead of just what's good for me now? What's good for me and my pocketbook and my family? What about taking on some of these more indigenous ways of thinking like the seven generations in the future? Um, If that were part of our everyday ethos when we walked into a, a business setting, how could that not change the decisions we make if we really owned that way of thinking? Um, and, uh, you know, what are some of the skills that get us there? So let me first talk about, you know, what what do what we actually, what does it mean to have a dominant paradigm? So I'm going to say there's such a thing as a worldview. You may have heard that word, but I think people go, oh, what is a worldview? Well, a worldview is your own personal collection of the ways you think the way you were raised, you know, every outer thing that has told you who you are and how the world works. So what we're trying to say is we need to really examine our own worldview. We need to break down our own biases, our own habituations, our own assumptions about how the world actually works and how human beings, what role we actually play. I mean, actually one of, in my PhD work, um, I didn't go there because it was too big of a concept, but I began to ask myself, what if we actually change the very meaning of human purpose? Like what is the purpose of humanity? And I think we can bring that back to earth a little bit and say, okay, if we just to be a little more simple about this, if we said that the purpose of humanity going back to my end of life perspective was to um, seek fulfillment for ourselves and everyone around us, how would that change and that became our everyday ethos, again, walking into business going, okay, this is my worldview. I mean, you don't, you don't literally say that, but if you can imagine that it's now inside of you, that that's your perspective, I think decisions would change. Some, some of our listeners might have heard this, this notion of um, if you ask a fish, how's the water? The fish will say, what water? Because the fish has no idea what waters it's actually swimming in because it's been like that its whole life. So if you apply that metaphor to your own life, think of the waters as the cultural waters in which you swim. It's so embedded in your ways of thinking that you don't even see it anymore. And so in our book, which again, um, I think, is a very accessible entryway into this kind of thinking. It just, it just, so, so what is the book is trying to do is help usher in this new kind of thinking. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited actually for people to read it, especially those people in the, um, in the business world. As I said, even though I've been talking about philosophy, this book is specifically intended for people that are, and why did we pick business? For people in the yeah. business world, because business, why did we pick business? Because business is a central locus of power in the world. All throughout our lives, we are moving in and out of spaces, whether we literally are, are running a business, working for a business, attend, you know, going to a business because we need uh, groceries or whatever it is. Business is woven throughout our life. And so if we can transform the business arena and have a lot more people thinking this way, I think we're really on to something. We're on to a trajectory that might help more people unleash their own potential, feel more fulfilled, get that spark of inspiration in their everyday life. 
Um, you know, and I was thrilled actually to be uh, uh, asked to write this book. Mm-hmm. I, I am not the primary author. I am the co-author. I mean, we're, we wrote together, but I should say um, this RE generation was an idea that was already in my co-author's head. And um, then he invited me to write with him. Sure. And so is this, I mean, when, when it comes to, to business world and, and transforming in this manner, is this happening naturally or is this something that we have to awaken people to? Do we have to awaken their power? And so in your consulting work, for instance, uh, you know, how do you even get in the door? How do you, how do you sell some of these hard charging CEOs that there's a, there's a better way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that it sells itself. I think when people come in the door, they are already looking for something. They're looking for something else that, perhaps monetary success hasn't given them or maybe they're they're troubled by um well certainly in this time the great uh resignation has been called the great reevaluation uh where people are really re-examining what why do i want to work what i know i have to have money but there must be something more i mean i really think the book is coming out at at a good time um, because it's people are already in that space. And so um, I think it sells itself. Yeah. I think most people want a sense of purpose. I, you know, there are some that are just fine walking around without it, I guess, but, but more and more in the conversations I'm having in the organizations I'm working with, they want to know that what they're doing is making some level of a di- difference that they're doing this for more than just, like you said, just the bottom line profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just, um, I think we've been thinking of humans as, as robotic mm-hmm. automatons who can just be put to work. Um, and that had to be part of our industrial revolution. I think that was kind of a, a phase. And we're, I, I do feel, and the pandemic has certainly helped us, I believe we're moving out of that phase. Yeah. I think we still need people to work expeditiously. And I mean, I'm one thing I didn't mention yet is I, I think, you know, like the skills that I learned from being a classically trained pianist, um, delayed gratification, um, Oh, persistence Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the face of frustration, uh, you know, commitment to excellence, uh, hard work, you know, all these skills help me work. So I'm not saying that we all can just laze around and philosophize about what things mean because work is meaning work creates meaning for people. And I think we no longer can live these divided lives between like coming home and there's where my life matters and my work life is Mm -hmm. just a thing I do. Um, I think that's a division. I think that's a binary that we need to address. And uh, our book addresses that. So when you get a new customer, a new client um, coming in, they know something's missing. Um, Where do you start with them? How does somebody get started? Yeah, how does somebody get started? I, I, I like to start with this worldview idea we just talked about because that's that's on top of everything. You can start with smaller conversations about, you know, something specific at work. But if you don't begin to say, and it starts very big and, and it, it's, a, it's a lifelong process to say, we need to start looking at what are the assumptions you're walking around in the world with? What are these kind of habitual ways of being? Um, and what are these biases that you're walking around with that actually hurt yourself in order to address your own deeper meaning? I, I hope that makes some sense. It's, I know it gets quite heady, um, but that's, 
that's where I would, that's where I start. Um, because frankly, to get into another topic really quickly, science is beginning to show us what religion has said for two to 3,000 years, that we truly are interconnected, that there is a fundamental connection between all of us. It's not just this airy-fairy idea. Right. It, and so fundamentally, that's what I mean about worldview. I think we're going to move towards a worldview that begins to truly understand, embrace, and embody a sense of our deep interconnectedness. And that is transformational. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're, um, we're bumping up at the end of our show. Um, time flies as always. Uh, okay. So if somebody wants to find the book, it's, it's available on Amazon, other booksellers. Yes, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and and actually, we're pleased. So many other booksellers too, but uh, of course, Amazon can be the easiest. Um, Barnes and Noble, and um, if someone prefers more indie uh, locations, you can find find it at probably a lot of your online indie booksellers as well. And the book is the R E, so the re. Generations, two words, not regeneration. It's the regeneration, yep. right? That's right. Let's get that straight. And if somebody, yep. um, if somebody wants to contact you or reach out, what's the best way? Or if they're interested, maybe even your services, what's the best way to find you? Best way to find me is my website, which is um, camillecolis.com. So C-A-M-I-L-L-E-K-O-L-L-E-S.com. Excellent. Well, Camille, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a oh, great conversation. Oh, it's been just a delight. It has. Well, thank you for letting me share. I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's been a joy. It's such interesting stuff. And there really is a transformation that is happening in business. And, and we're at a really interesting time where you've got still a lot of old school guys pushing old school ways with kind of this new way of thinking. And as I'm watching which companies are outperforming which, um, this, is, this is the way it's going. It feels this is the way this is going. And, you know, the young people, they're starting to demand it. Not yeah. even starting. They have been demanding it. They are they are the inspiration for companies to change. Too bad the companies can't change of their own volition. That would be nice. Yep. Uh, I've been disappointed in a few that haven't, but those that have are fantastic. But you know what? Thankfully, the younger generation is demanding it. And that's where the change is coming from. That's excellent. Well, everyone, thanks for uh, for listening this week. This has been a great conversation, and I uh, look forward to having all of you join us again for future episodes. Until then, uh, enjoy things. Thanks. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.